Hola, welcome to the G2 Podcast. Hi, my name is Matt. I'm a teacher. I work over in Leeds. Um, I teach secondary school, so all of the hormones, which is wonderful. Um, but welcome to G2. We are a, a community of people. We are here to follow Jesus because we believe that we truly find life in Jesus. If you're new this morning, it is great to have you with us. Uh, as you can see, things are a little bit different. If you're not new today, I said this morning again, didn't I? Oh, well. If you're not new today, things are going to be different today anyway. So we're all in it together. Today we're taking a break uh, from going through Matthew and we're focusing in on Elijah in the Old Testament because we've seen last week in small groups that uh, John the Baptist gets called Elijah a lot. And so today we're going to spend some time looking together about why he is called Elijah. But before we do that, um, you probably can't tell from my physique, but around the age of 13 I had a choice between being a drummer and being, between being a hockey goalkeeper. I had been drumming for about four or five years at that point. I'd got quite good. I think if I'd... No, Dan, I'm, I'm, no, my days are over with drumming. I'm not, I'm not signing up to that anymore. Um, but I'd been, I'd been good enough that if I'd carried on, I probably could have been in the church band if I wanted to. Um, but I had suddenly developed this passion for being a hockey goalkeeper. It's something I was doing at school. It's something I loved. Um, but I had this choice because for about a month, I had missed all of my drum lessons every single day for a month because the time when I could do hockey was also the time when I could train. And so I was faced with this choice. Do I either commit to two things and do both of them badly because I overstretched myself or do I commit to one? Now, I don't know if that's a situation that you've been in. Uh, if you're interested, I chose to be a hockey goalkeeper, which is why I'm not over there today. Um, but the time has come for our youth and our kids to leave. Now, whilst they leave, have a talk in your groups at the tables have you faced a situation where you've had to choose what to commit to? What did you choose? And why did you choose it? Kids, please could you escort your parents up to where youth is? If you are new... Great. Thank you, everyone. Uh, let's come back together now. Now, I won't embarrass any of you by asking the commitments, but I will embarrass Ben because I was talking to Ben. Uh, apparently, Ben had to make a commitment to not be a bass player because he was so bad his church didn't want him. Um, ask him about that later. Uh, <laughs> Sorry? No, I had to stop. Being, the troubles of being a teacher meant it was... It was a time commitment I couldn't commit to. But, any, <laughs> but anyway, we are here to worship God this afternoon. So why don't I pray and then we will crack on. Father God, thank you that we can meet openly here together. Uh, we know of many brothers and sisters around the world who have to meet in secret for fear of what will happen to them. But thank you that you are the same God over them and over us, that we have a great hope and a great salvation in Jesus Christ. Please, would you fix our minds and hearts on you now? Would I preach your word faithfully, boldly? Would you work in us by your spirit to see you and know you more this afternoon? In Jesus' name, amen. Now, as I've said, we are going to be looking at Elijah today. Elijah is a very odd prophet. 
Because in reality, he only shows up in about five chapters in the Old Testament. And yet he is the prophet that John the Baptist gets associated with. The reason, well, one of the reasons why Elijah crops up is because Elijah comes at a very important time in Israel's history. David has been king. He has established the kingdom. He is God's chosen king, a man after God's own heart. After David, we have Solomon. Uh, And through Solomon, Israel sees the greatest prosperity it has ever seen, arguably perhaps the wealthiest nation in the period at that time. Uh, But after Solomon, there is a great decline in the kings of Israel. They gradually become more and more, uh, they drift further and further away from God. They become more rebellious. They become uh, almost like they're competing with each other to see who can get further away from God this time. And Elijah emerges at the time of King Ahab. Now, let me read to you what the writer of uh, the first book of Kings says about Ahab. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord, more than all who were before him. Uh, And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. Now, that's not a light thing for the author to say here. There's been some pretty horrific kings already. But now we have a king who not only is drifting away from God, is openly going to the opposing God of the time, Baal, which is a problem because the king is meant to be the person who leads Israel. So the second the king goes astray, the second Israel as a whole stops following God. And so God raises up Elijah at the time of Ahab to deal with that. And we're going to hear the pinnacle of Elijah's ministry now as Ben reads to us from 1 Kings chapter 18. So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the people and said, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. Then Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bulls for us. Let Baal's prophets choose one for themselves and let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. Then you call on the name of your God and I will call on the name of the Lord. The God who answers by fire... He is God. Then all the people said, what you say is good. Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one of the bulls and prepare it first, since there are many of you. Call on the name of your God, but do not light the fire. So they took the bull that was given to them and prepared it. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. No one answered. And they danced around the altar they had made. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he's God. Perhaps he is deep in thought or busy or traveling. 
Maybe he's sleeping and must be awakened. So they shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom, until their blood flowed. Yeah. Midday passed, and they, continu they continued their frantic prophesying until their time for the evening sacrifice. But there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, come here to me. They came to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. Elijah took the 12 stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, your name shall be Israel. With the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he dug a trench round it, large enough to, see, to hold two seers of seed. He arranged the wood, cut the bull into pieces, and laid it on the wood. Then he said to them, fill four large jars of water and pour it on the offering and on the wood. Do it again, he said. And they did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered, and they did it a third time. The water ran down the altar and filled the trench. At the time of the sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me, so these people know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. Then Elijah commanded them, seize the prophets of Baal, don't let anyone get away. They seized them and Elijah brought them down to the Cushion Valley and slaughtered there. Great. Thank you, Ben. Um, I'm now going to uh, begin a verse-by-verse -verse exposition of every 20 verses that Ben has just read. I hope you're ready. I expect this to take about two and a half hours. So is everyone, everyone comfortable? Because the worrying thing is that a few of you are going, yeah, Matt actually might do that. <laughs> so before we get to this point, this is the pinnacle of Elijah's ministry. This is the point. This is the reason why God sent Elijah to the Israelites at this time in Ahab. But before we get to what happened in what Ben has just read for us, let me give you a little bit of background. Now, Baal, or Baal, was a Canaanite god, Cana just being the land that the Israelites had entered into, that had been around since the Israelites had gone into Canaan after the Exodus. Baal is not a god. Baal is a, an idol, an imagination that people have made up to try and explain what's going on in the world around them. But Baal is particularly significant for the Israelites because Baal is the god of the harvest. And so in a community that is based on farmers, Baal is literally the god of life and death. If we have the crazy weather that we've already had, the Canaanites at the time would have prayed to Baal to pray that the rain would go away. If there was the freak storms that we had yesterday, they would prevent, present sacrifices and offerings to Baal to protect the harvest. If they had the droughts that we're starting to get in the summer, they would have prevent, uh, presented a sacrifice to Baal because if they didn't have the harvest right, they literally died or they starved or they were faced with the situation that actually we see later on in the Bible where some of the Israelites started to eat their own children because they were that desperate for food. So Baal in many ways was the God of life and death and was in direct opposition to the claims of the God of Israel. The God of Israel did not like, does not like, sharing the throne with any made-up idol, with any false God that claims to have the say of life and death over us. And it then gets even more difficult 
So just as Elijah arrives, God sends a drought. And so the Israelites, who under King Ahab have been following Baal, praying to Baal, offering sacrifices to Baal, that their harvest would succeed when they should have been going to the God of all the world, has sent a drought to test them, to see where they're going to go. Now, you might be sat there thinking, but why would the Israelites do that? They saw God part the Red Sea. They have the stories passed on from generation to generation of God's faithfulness. Why on earth would they go to a made-up idol that some, someone named, I don't know, Jeff down the road carved out because they wanted someone to pray to, to think that they could have control over their own lives? The problem is we do that as well. We have so many bales or baals that we have set up in our society. The key ones that we have today are our identity and tolerance. You want to see who we think has control over life and death. Say something controversial on Twitter. You will be cancelled. You will be gone because we now worship the God of tolerance. The way to a good life is to supposedly make sure we don't offend anyone Make sure that we are living a life so that everyone can pretend in this perfect bubble that we can be exactly who we want to be whenever we want to be it. The ball of our age is that for us to truly live, we need to take whatever is inside of ourselves and make it exist in the world outside of us. So we, we have the ball of our age being our identity and tolerance to try and convince ourselves that we can control our lives and that we have something else to worship instead of God. Now, God sends Elijah to the Israelites and the whole of Elijah's ministry is summed up by a prayer that he makes in chapter 18. When he offers the offering, this is verse 36, he says, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel. Elijah's whole purpose is to show the Israelites that God is in charge, not Baal. To, remind, to show them that they need to turn back from trying to appease an idol that they have made up and instead serve the living God and he will provide life for them. And Elijah does this in several ways. So with Baal being the god of the harvest and the god of life, it was assumed at the time that there were several things he had control over. The first one was the production of food, and the second one, by extension, was literally life and death. So as we go through um, 1 Kings 17, Elijah does two particular miracles to evidence the fact that the Lord, the god of Israel, is greater than Baal. And he comes to a widow. The first thing he does is he takes a jar of flour and a jar of oil and makes it last. I actually don't know how long he makes it last. He makes it last as long as they need to. The second one is then when the widow's son dies, he raises him from the dead in direct opposition to Baal. Baal is not in charge of how much food or how much oil you have. God is. Baal is not in charge of who lives and who dies. God is. Now, it's clear that Elijah probably did more than this in his ministry, uh, because if we go to verse 17 in chapter 18, Ahab calls Elijah the troubler of Israel. So it's clear that he did a lot more than simply the widower's son, because I don't think that's enough for a king to really care about you. 
If it is, I think we'd all be expecting to be in Buckingham Palace and perhaps getting a knighthood or something else. Um, but those are just examples to show that Baal does not have control. And so this leads up to the great confrontation that Ben has just read for us there, where Elijah challenges the whole of Israel. Are you going to follow Baal or are you going to follow God, the Lord of Israel? Um, now ben was reading from the New International Version when he read that. And the New International Version is great, but it's a bit kinder than the Hebrew was. Let me read to you literally what Elijah said to them. Elijah came near to all the people and said, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And what Elijah is getting at here is that Israel has developed a split personality. They know that they should be following God. They know that really God is in charge, but they want to follow Baal because it's so much easier. At least it seems like it. It's so much easier to imagine that there is a God that you can appease by offering sacrifices that will make the harvest better, rather than submitting to the God of the universe. And so Elijah issues a challenge. If Baal is really in charge, make him set that sacrifice on fire. He takes an oxen and he splits it up. He says, make them, make Baal set it on fire. And this again is where we see that actually the new international version was perhaps a little bit too kind, to be honest. Because Elijah mocked them saying, cry aloud for he is a God. Either he is musing or he is, is relieving himself or he is on a journey or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. Essentially, he's saying, where is Baal? Has he gone to the toilet? Why is he not doing anything? Where has your God gone? I bet he's in the men's over there. But Baal doesn't show. Baal just doesn't show. And actually, we see in this story, particularly how the prophets act, the sadness that comes from not following God. Because if we look at verse 29, the prophets are described as limping around the altar. You may have heard when Ben read before that their custom when they offered a sacrifice was to cut themselves with swords and lances until blood gushed out upon them. Because you see, following a God that isn't God hurts you. Following a God that is not the God of the universe hurts us. It leaves us limping. It leaves us with the blood pouring out of us because we find that rather than being welcomed by God, we have to strip ourselves of everything and just destroy ourselves. We crumble inwards trying to serve Baal. And the rise in um, mental health that I'm seeing with my students is an example of this. They're growing up, um, I teach secondary school, um, they're growing up being told the only way you can truly fulfill yourself is if you take your deepest desires and make sure that you map the world to them. The only way you can consider yourself to have it succeeded at life is if you dig right down inside of you, see what you think is most unique about yourself and make that known. Now, there are so many reasons for mental health. There are so many reasons that people can find themselves on mental health issues. But isn't it interesting that in a culture where we say, show yourself, make yourself reality, 
we find ourselves crumbling under the pressure of it. But the God of the universe is not like that. Whereas Baal leaves us limping, leaves us cutting ourselves, blood gushing out, leaves us empty and hollow, the God of the universe shows up. Now let me read to you again Elijah's prayer in verse 36. O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the wood and licked up the water that was in the trench. Elijah has set the challenge. He has challenged the people. What will you go limping between? Will you go limping between a God that will destroy you or will you go limping between the God of Israel? And the God of Israel shows up. His evidence is not just that he can set a sacrifice alight. He can set a sacrifice drenched in something like three jars full of water. Elijah then, with God having demonstrated that God is the God of the universe, Elijah then kills the prophets. And as a final sacrifice, a final victory, he sends the rain that the whole of Israel had been longing for a chapter back already. The problem is the people don't turn back to God. When Elijah first challenges them and says, how long will you go limping between one God and another? The people are silent. And after the sacrifice, the people remain silent. And actually, when we then look on to chapter 19, Elijah finds himself with a death sentence on his head because Jezebel, the queen of Ahab, has actually said, well, has actually then challenged Ahab to say, he's challenging you. By challenging Baal, he is challenging you because you have turned Israel to Baal. And so there is a death sentence put on Elijah's head. And the Israelites are nowhere to be seen. God's great prophet, the, the prophet who was going to bring the Israelites back to God, are nowhere. He's failed. And no one has turned up. But that leaves us with a question as well. Don't worry, it doesn't end there. Don't worry. Um, but that leaves us with a question. How do we go limping between two different opinions? Have you found yourself being torn apart, trying to serve Baal, the God of this age, and trying to serve God? Have you found yourself pouring yourself out, emptying yourself, whether it's for that middle-class ideal, whether it's in the name of tolerance, whether it's in the name of trying to actualize our identity in the world? Have you found yourself being hollowed out by Baal and left alone? Have you seen your sacrifice laid every single day and been left wanting every single day? Well, look now at God's sacrifice. There is a sacrifice that has already been made. Unlike with Elijah, where he challenged the people in front of them and then performed the sacrifice to evidence God, we have a sacrifice that is already before us. We have someone who has been pierced for our transgressions, who has been crushed for our iniquity, someone who has had the chastisement that brings us peace laid upon him, someone whose wounds heal 
us. Are you limping between two opinions when you can see the sacrifice that God placed on Calvary? Or are you not quite sure yet? This is a challenge I deal with every single day. And it's it's something I find so hard because I can start my day fully committed to God, ready there at the altar, ready to go after Elijah. But then I get into the middle day and I go back limping over to Baal. I forget, I leave God over there. Whatever it is that's going on the day, particularly at school, I go limping back over and I find myself hollowed out. And I don't mean in terms of just the general exhaustion that comes from being a person in today's society. There is something spiritually that leaves me hollowed out. So I wonder, we're going to have about 10 minutes now to talk to the people around you. Do you find yourself limping between two opinions? And have you been discouraged in a way? Have you, been, have you set yourself out like Elijah, placed your sacrifice before him, but found that God hasn't showed up? Turn now in your tables and discuss. Have you been limping between two opinions? And are there times where you've been discouraged when you were expecting God to turn up? Great, thank you everyone. Do take a seat. So I'm guessing from a lot of the conversations that we've had, it's not hard to imagine how Elijah was feeling. It's not hard to imagine being stuck there, knowing what it is like to have been limping from one opinion to the next, to have taken a risk, to have stood for God in the world. Um, we were having a brilliant conversation on, on my table um, about, oh, clearly we're at the end of chapter 18 and the rain has arrived. Um, <laughs> we were having a brilliant conversation on my table about there's an awareness that those of us who are in work, those of us at university especially, there is a, an awareness that a time is going to come where we're going to have to choose. There is going to, tie, there's going to be a time that's going to have to come where we're going to have to choose. Are we going to stand for God or are we going to stand for Baal? And it's scary. Because we see Elijah, he stood for God and he's got a death sentence. Nothing has happened. Israel arguably is in a worse place than it was before he did anything. And now he has run off into the wilderness at the lowest point of his life, wondering what is going on. Now, I'm not saying I had exactly the same situation, mainly because there isn't really any desert in York. Um, but when I was a student at London, I had a very similar situation to CU. I got really committed to CU. I really invested in CU. Uh, for some reason, they wanted me on me to be on committee for two years. Um, so I really put a lot of time into CU and saw nothing come of it. I would, every week I'd be there, we'd be praying, we'd be doing events. Um, and we saw, I don't think we saw anybody become a Christian in the entire time that I was at CU in three years. And it's incredibly discouraging. Or it could be the case of we spend this time, we see the kind of people we want to be in God and it, we just don't get there each and every time. And it's so hard and it's tiring. Well, God has got a promise for us that he gave first to Elijah. So have a look with me. Chapter 19, verse 18. Elijah has really is got to the end of himself. Um, 
He probably, at this point, looking, reading through, he probably is in a deep depression. And this is a, this is a famous chapter where God speaks to Elijah. Uh, but there's a promise that God makes at the very end of it. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed them. Now, another way of translating is that verse of translating that verse is, I have kept for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. God has preserved a remnant, a group left over in the midst of all of this pain, all of this difficulty, and seemingly like nothing is happening. God has kept for himself 7,000 people. Elijah was not wrong to take the stand that he did. Elijah did exactly what God wanted him to do at the time that he did it. The thing is, though, it's not Elijah who brings revival. It is not Elijah who leads to people becoming Christians. It's not Elijah who lifts himself out of his situation. It is God who has prepared it already. Elijah's commitment to God led to him proclaiming God, which then we see at the end of this chapter led to Elijah trusting God that he would use what he has done to bring revival. And we see in the history of Israel, this, comes a, this actually comes a few generations later with Josiah, who arguably is the best king that Israel had after David. There was a great revival of um, religion, of faith, of people serving God and knowing that God was their God. And as an aside... If you ever have male children in the future, Josiah is a brilliant name. <laughs> have we got a Josiah? We've already got one. Brilliant. Let's see if we can get to five by 10 years' time. Who knows? <laughs> Maybe not. Maybe not. But so if we can trust that God will bring fruit from what we do, what are we meant to do? What does it mean particularly to proclaim? Now, we heard from Ben already with Isaiah 58. To proclaim is like the heavens opening up, the sunrise and the sunset, the sun just displaying its glory. I like to think of it like birds. Now, where I live, it's a mostly quiet cul-de-sac, except for scooters that seem to think it's a nice place to rev up and drive through. Uh, but I'll raise that with my local councillor. Um, you're welcome. Um, but the brilliant thing about where we live is just as the sun rises, there are so many birds in the garden and you can just hear them chirping. You can hear them start to sing as the sun rises. Now, I like to think to myself, they're probably going, it's the sun. Oh, my goodness, it's the sun. Um, <laughs> because they are singing for joy at the fact that the morning has arrived. There is not a single bird out there, I guarantee you, there is not a single bird outside my window going, oh, Matt's opened his window. Oh, great. Oh, and Paul, two doors down, he's opened his window. And oh, Sean has opened his window. The birds don't care because they're there to focus on the morning. They sing, not really because they're worried about who hears them. They sing for the joy that the morning brings them. So the key to us, like Elijah, knowing how we're meant to live our lives, how we are meant to face the fact that one day we are going to have to choose 
to stop limping between Baal and God. We are going to have to face up to the fact that there is an entire culture that does not like Christians is to focus on the morning that is to come. It is to focus on the sunrise that we will see. And this is why, this is why John the Baptist is called Elijah. I know some of you were probably thinking, when are we going to get there, Matt? Because you've gone on a lot and we haven't talked about John the Baptist yet. So if you turn to Malachi chapter 4, I'm going to read it all because it's just six verses. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will stumble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet. On the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts, remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn their hearts to their fathers, of fathers to their children and hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Now, Malachi was the last time God spoke to Israel for 400 years. Malachi is the last prophet that Israel has before John the Baptist. And what God is saying to Israel here is someone is going to come like Elijah. Someone is going to come who is going to challenge you to stop limping between two opinions and pick who are you serving? And he is going to come because he is going to proclaim to you the day that is to come. God is going to come and be with you. The sun of righteousness is going to rise upon you and you will enter into the kingdom of God. Someone is going to come who is going to sing for joy at the morning and is going to call you to do the same. Because John the Baptist being committed to Jesus couldn't help but proclaim Jesus because he knew what he was going to do. And in proclaiming Jesus, John sat in that prison, waiting for Herod to kill him, trusted God that out of the little that he has done, God was going to bring revival. So this is how we deal with the world crashing in around us. This is how we deal with the fact if we find ourselves being cut up blood pouring out of us, limping over to the altar of the world and finding ourselves dying inside. We look to the son of righteousness that will rise. We proclaim the son of righteousness for the joy that it brings us simply to tell others that Jesus is coming. And we trust God that he will bring revival with what little we do. So turn in your tables now and pray. Pray for revival, because the other thing that I just haven't had time to talk on, because I go on a lot already, is that one of the things that Elijah is particularly quoted for in James is the fact that his prayers 
He was a man who prayed. Now, I think there was the last slide, which is the map of York. I was going to print this out for you, but then I realized we all have phones, so that's a bit pointless. Um, what I would like you to do, zoom in on the map to your house and your street and pray for revival in your street. Pray for your neighbors. I'm going to be praying for Paul and for Sean and for Nigel and Vonnie and a few others, that they would come to know God. Not because I can make them Christian, but because I'm trusting that God has kept them for himself and he will turn their hearts to him. And then, if you have time for this, practice proclaiming is something we can practice and do. Because when you're in that moment where someone actually goes, yeah, tell me a little bit about Jesus, it's helpful to think beforehand. And there's a verse on the screen, Romans 3, verses 23 to 25, uh, which just simply lays out the gospel. And it's something that I use if people ask me. So we're going to have about five, ten minutes, five minutes. Turn in your group, pray for revival on your street. And then Dan and the band are going to lead us in worship in about five minutes. <laughs>